Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is Saturday, our Pali Canon in English study group, where we come together to study the words of the Buddha. This is our last week in volume three of this 13 book series, where we're studying the words of the Buddha on the path to enlightenment, revealing these hidden teachings of the Buddha. We come together each week in order to review and study, discuss, about 10 chapters in each of these books. And this particular week, we've actually studied 14 chapters because of the ending of the book at 124 chapters. So we went from chapters 111 to 124. And typically in this class, what we'll do is we'll start with meditation as a way to kind of clear out the mind and kind of prepare it to learn and retain the teachings for a longer period of time. But since we're studying more chapters this week, I thought what I would do is kind of forego meditation this week in order to ensure that we have time to thoroughly walk through each one of the chapters covering all the various chapters that we looked at this week. So if you're joining us for the first time, you're welcome to join. People have been reading these chapters prior to class, but we're also going to read them during the class as well and actually display them right on the screen. And as we display them, a student or a volunteer, sometimes me, will read these chapters Then I will teach a bit about the chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys have related to the chapter. And the way that you ask questions is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you just put those into the comment section and our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class so that I can answer it for you. And in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand asking any questions or follow-up questions directly. And as we progress through this program, we will cover all the books from volumes two through volumes 13. And next week, we're gonna be starting on volume four. And these books are all easily downloadable. They're accessible on our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. You just click on the link for free books. And they're also available in print on Amazon, or you can take the file and go print it yourself if you'd like. I haven't put any copyright type thing on this. I'm more interested in having anyone who would like to learn and access the teachings to be able to do that. So even if Amazon doesn't deliver to your country, you're able to take this file and go print it at maybe a local print shop or something like that and get a nice bound book so that you'll have the teachings that you need and you can progress through each section of the book week by week as we study 10 chapters a week. So I'd like to welcome all of you for joining to learn and understand the Buddhist teachings. We're going to switch over to now show the book and go from chapters 111 to chapter 124 in our class today. 
And our moderators, Bassam, Nick, and Manal are here to help us along and ensure that we have volunteers for reading and that any questions get asked. Bassam asked me to read chapter 111, which tends to be a little bit of a longer chapter here. This is studying the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. With the Buddhist teachings, everything plugs into the Eightfold Path in one way or another. The Eightfold Path is the central teaching that everything else plugs into, and this is the path to enlightenment. This is how a being would train their mind and progress to this point where you've eliminated discontentedness from the mind, where the mind is enlightened or it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. And with this centralized teaching of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha teaches to a certain level of degree or a certain degree of detail. He doesn't go into excruciating detail in the Eightfold Path because he taught for 45 years and at different times he taught different aspects of the path. But the Eightfold Path gives kind of like a framework or a structure in which to understand this path to enlightenment. So he teaches to a certain level of detail. And then as you progress in this program and others that we have, he kind of pulls back layer by layer, going deeper and deeper and deeper down into his teachings so that you can glean more and more insight, more and more wisdom to understand how to practice in such a way to eliminate discontent feelings and attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. So as I read through here, understand that this is a framework. It's one level of detail, but it's not just this teaching by itself is all you would need to get to enlightenment. Yes, you would need to understand this as a centralized teaching as a framework, but you will need to also understand all the other teachings that go along with it and plug into this, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the five precepts, understanding the natural law of gamma, understanding the three poisons, having extensive meditation training, so forth and so on. There's a lot of details that you would need to learn that really plug into this. So let's go ahead and investigate this particular teaching and read through it and then see what questions you guys have. In what monks is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. In what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, in the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. Here, the Buddha is talking about the Four Noble Truths. He's talking about ensuring that you understand, you've learned, you've reflected, and you practice what is discontentedness, the cause of it, the elimination of it, in the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Without establishing right view, which we teach as part of the group learning program on Sunday and Wednesdays, Without understanding that, you wouldn't be able to actually progress in your 
development of your life practice to attain enlightenment because without right view, you wouldn't understand what the real cause and the real solution is of discontentedness. So if you haven't yet read chapter four and five in volume one, that would be really important for you to do that in order to establish right view. Now we go on to the second part, the second step of the Eightfold Path. In what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. Here you see three aspects of right intention. The intention of renunciation is to give up and let go, no longer holding on to things tightly. The intention of non-ill will, another way to say that is have the intention of goodwill or loving kindness, this active goodwill, this active practice of loving kindness. The intention of harmlessness, not being interested in harming other beings. Because if you understand the natural law of gamma, that whatever you put out is going to come back to you, then you understand to practice harmlessness, not being interested to harm other beings through things like our speech, our actions, our livelihood, which is the next part of the Eightfold Path. And there's details on this again in volume one in chapter five. It goes through and explains very detailed about these and helping you to understand these. And I've done talks on these in a lot of detail in the group learning program. And what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So here at this level of detail, he's providing some basic guidance on right speech. But when you look at some of his other teachings, like the five factors of well-spoken speech, he's expanding his teachings on right speech so that you can more deeply understand how to practice right speech in a way that is going to be beneficial for you in your practice in developing and cultivating healthy personal and professional relationships. Whereas if we're lying or slandering or we're having harsh speech or frivolous speech and we're putting that out into the world, that's what's going to come back to us. But the five factors of well-spoken speech are things like speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speaking gently, speaking beneficially, speaking with a mind of loving kindness. These are the five factors that are, again, explained in detail in chapter five of volume one. And what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So these are three actions that are described in detail in the five precepts. When you look at the five precepts, the Buddha gives a lot more detail in these. Here in the Eightfold Path, he just gives a certain level of detail and then expands it for you in the five precepts. And again, if you look at chapter five and chapter seven of volume one, it explains this in more detail. Because if we were killing other beings, there has to be a certain amount of hate in the mind in order to do that, or if we were taking what is not given, if we were stealing, this would cause harm to others, therefore harm is going to come to us. Or if we had sexual misconduct, meaning we were maybe having sex outside of a loyal committed relationship, or having sex with minors, or sex without consent, and there's a whole lot of other details in the five precepts that the Buddha gives around sexual misconduct. If we were doing any of those things, 
then we're going to be causing harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So we need to purify our bodily actions. So by purifying our intentions, that's our thoughts or the way that we're thinking, by purifying our speech and the way we communicate in the world, by purifying our actions or bodily actions, ensuring we're not causing harm with those, then we've purified the first four steps of the Eightfold Path in our life practice, ensuring that we're not causing harm to others. Therefore, we will see that less and less harm will come to us, but we need to be practicing the entire Eightfold Path in order to actually get to enlightenment, which includes having right livelihood. In what, monks, is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple having given up wrong livelihood keeps himself by right livelihood. Here, the Buddha talks just very basic about livelihood, but in other teachings, he describes what we call five wrong livelihoods. He says, if we sell poisons, if we sell weapons, if we sell living beings, if we sell meat, and if we sell uh, substances that cause heedlessness, these are going to cause harm in the world. And I go through in the group learning program and in volume one of the book detail about why this is and what we should do in ensuring that we're not practicing any of these five wrong livelihoods. And by doing so, we then aren't causing any harm through our livelihood. We're not sustaining our life based on the harm of other beings. Whereas if we were trying to sustain our livelihood and make income from any of these five wrong livelihoods, it's sustaining our life based on the harm of other beings. And this wouldn't allow us to live peacefully because we're constantly causing harm through our livelihood. Right effort, the next one, moves into the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. In what monks is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, and exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. I'm going to pause right there because there's four aspects to right effort. The first one is about preventing any evil, unwholesome mental states from arising in the mind. So if there's evil, unwholesome mental states that don't currently exist in the mind, then we should prevent those from ever coming into the mind. Then the second aspect here is any evil, unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind is that we work and apply effort to eliminate those from the mind. And the Buddha talks and teaches what are the unwholesome mental states as you progress and learn more on this path. You understand things like selfishness or ill will or complacency things like this, ego, arrogance, pride, things like this and others are these unwholesome mental states that he's talking about that we need to either prevent or apply effort to eliminate from our mind. So the more deeply you investigate his teachings, the more you'll understand what these evil unwholesome mental states are. And then you apply effort during meditation, but also in your daily life that whenever these arise in the mind, you apply effort to cut them off and let them go or prevent them from even arising in the mind at all. And some of those are things that we've already talked about in this path, like 
sexual misconduct or killing or stealing if you don't have any feeling to steal anything from anybody right now then you would prevent that from ever arising in the mind versus where if you're currently are stealing from people then that's that second aspect where that's currently in the mind is something unwholesome that the mind's currently doing now take effort to eliminate that and stop stealing so that's how you apply this effort to then eliminate these unwholesome qualities. Now picking up on the next two aspects of right effort, he rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. What the Buddha is talking about here is that if there's any wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, is that you arise the energy and apply the effort to now bring those wholesome mental states into the mind. So if you know that part of this path is to eliminate this selfishness which is an unwholesome quality then the wholesome quality is generosity then you would apply effort to arise generosity in the mind if you know on this path the goal is to eliminate anger hatred and ill will which is a evil unwholesome mental state and then the antidote to transform that the wholesome quality is loving kindness then you apply right effort to arise loving kindness in all situations And then the more that you do that, this quality of loving kindness and generosity will permeate in the mind, for example. It'll just always be there because you've cultivated and developed it so much that it's just always there. So just like with the unwholesome mental states, the more you learn about the path to enlightenment, you will learn what these wholesome mental states are so that you can arise them in the mind. And then that fourth aspect of right effort is any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, you maintain those. You don't allow them to fade. You grow them, bring them to greater growth and full perfection. So if the mind currently has compassion or it currently has other qualities like generosity or this loving kindness, then you develop those, help them to grow, don't allow them to fade and bring them to full perfection and development. That's what this fourth aspect of right effort is. And what, monks, is right mindfulness? Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful. Having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mind as mind dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. Here what the Buddha is pointing to is the four foundations of mindfulness. You would need to understand and be aware in the mind of bodily sensations, of feelings that come into the mind, of the condition of the mind, and these mental objects that reside in the mind. And by having awareness of these 
four foundations of mindfulness, then you can work to eliminate discontentedness as discontentedness starts to arise, you will notice the bodily sensations first. You will then notice they become feelings in the mind. You will then notice that that affects the condition of the mind. Then you will notice that it forms mental objects. But if you can get ahead of the curve on this and cut off discontentedness at the bodily sensations, then you don't experience all these downstream effects of the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. So what a practitioner will need to do is develop the four foundations of mindfulness, understanding all these four foundations. Generally, when someone first starts out, I teach them just to think of right mindfulness as awareness of mind and just generally think of it as awareness of mind. But at this point, once you're starting to move into the Pali Canon and you're starting to understand the deeper teachings of the Buddha, then you need to develop the four foundations of mindfulness. And you do that through breathing mindfulness meditation, but you also do that in daily life, that as you notice frustration or anger or sadness or boredom or loneliness, or even happiness, excitement, these other feelings start to arise, you should start noticing these bodily sensations that are occurring before that happens. Like I remember with me, when I used to get angry, I would feel this heat or this sharp pain and this arising heat and sensation starting from my feet all the way up to the head where it would feel this pressure in the head and this heat almost in the head where it would almost be throbbing, right? These are the bodily sensations helping to alert you that there's some discontentedness that is arising. And if you can cut it off there, then it won't become feelings in the mind. It won't affect the condition of the mind and it won't form these mental objects, which means you just saved yourself a whole bunch of heartache and misery. And you've also saved yourself probably some unskillful speech or actions that might result from that anger. So not just anger or these painful feelings, but also pleasant feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. They all follow this same process of bodily sensations, feelings in the mind, condition of the mind and mental objects. And if you can develop this mindfulness of these feelings that are starting to arise and then learn to cut them off at the bodily sensations, then the mind can then be more actively trained and move to enlightenment because in doing so, having this awareness of mind, you'll be able to then eliminate the craving desire attachments that are causing the mind to be shaken up by pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. In what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk distant from central desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, which means unable to be upset or excited, calm and serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say. Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, 
and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration, and that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So here in right concentration, what he's describing is actually the results of having learned and practiced all these other steps along the Eightfold Path. The simple way to think about right concentration is to have singleness of mind. And he talks about this in other parts of his teachings. Here, he chose to focus on the results of the entire path. But in other parts of his teachings, he talks about developing right concentration as singleness of mind, focusing on just one thing at a time, rather than allowing the mind to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And the way that you develop that singleness of mind is through breathing mindfulness meditation focused on the breath as your single object of concentration. But then in daily life, when you're in your daily life and doing daily activities, you focus on just one single thing at a time. Rather than trying to do multiple things at one time, you just handle things single-threadedly one thing at a time. And this will develop concentration more and more. But there's other things in here that you see that you will need to end up distancing yourself from central desires where you're no longer looking to create pleasant feelings in the mind through the six senses, which we talk about as part of this program in volume nine, I think it is, volume nine of this book series. We're going to be diving into the six sense spaces in a lot of detail. So this part that the Buddha is talking about with right concentration, he's describing these four jhanas, which are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it reaches the first stage of enlightenment. There's four stages of enlightenment, but before you get to those, the mind will experience these four preliminary phases that we call jhanas. And what a jhana is, is a jhana is described as meditative absorption. So through learning and practicing the full path to a certain degree and allowing your meditation to absorb in the mind and really soak in the mind, you'll move through these four preliminary phases where meditation has absorbed in the mind so well that you start developing certain qualities in these jhanas that are very different and remarkably different than when you were off this path or when you first started this path. You will get concentration, you will get clarity of mind, you will get this mindfulness, this equanimity, this tranquility. All these qualities of mind start to come to the surface and you start observing the improvement to the condition of the mind. The mind still isn't enlightened yet, but the difference between someone who's off the path versus someone who's experiencing these jhanas is almost like night and day. There's some people who experience these jhanas without really truly understanding what's going on, and they actually think they're enlightened. But they're not yet enlightened. They're just experiencing these jhanas. And if they continue to think they are enlightened and they're done and they don't have to do any more work, then they're not actually going to progress all the way to enlightenment. Because in the jhanas, they're still going to be experiencing discontentedness. They haven't eliminated discontentedness yet. They're just experiencing these improved qualities of mind that are like night and day comparative when you're off the path. But these jhanas are temporary. They're not permanent. And you're not going to experience permanent contentedness 
peacefulness and joy in these jhanas. Instead, it's not until you get to the fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant, where the mind will then be fully enlightened and no longer experiencing any discontentedness. So here in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha is just describing the results of putting together the Eightfold Path and what you'll experience as part of moving into the jhanas. But what right concentration truly is, is practicing singleness of mind and using breathing mindfulness meditation in order to develop that singleness of mind and practice that in daily life. And once you're doing that, along with all the other steps on this Eightfold Path, it will ultimately produce these jhanas and the mind will ultimately start experiencing these jhanas. And that's your indication that, aha, I'm starting to put this path together pretty well. I'm on the right track. Now let me start focusing on the 10 fetters and eliminating those so that I can move into the stages of enlightenment. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter. It seems that a right speech is more challenging than the other aspect. So if this is true, do you agree that if one is really dedicated, one can practice right speech perfectly from the first time? No, it's not possible to practice any of these perfectly from the first time because the mind is unaware of these things and our mind has been conditioned, for example, to speak in certain ways. And whether we're 20 years old, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years old, we've been speaking a certain way that isn't based on these teachings for a number of years. And if you rewind that back further for our previous lives, we've had many countless lives where we haven't been practicing these teachings to the level of detail that it requires to attain enlightenment. If we had been practicing these to the level of detail that it requires to attain enlightenment, then we wouldn't be in existence today. The reason why we exist today is because we didn't attain enlightenment in the past. So the conditioning of the mind is oftentimes very well-rooted. It's very significant. The mind is somewhat polluted through all the experiences that we've had in this life and previous lives. So you're not going to be able to learn any of these teachings and click your fingers and instantly start practicing them. But the more that you apply dedication and diligence to learning and practicing, you can increase and improve your practice more and more readily. So it's just going to take time for you to be able to do that for all of these teachings. So that's why it requires a very dedicated investigation. And then it requires energy to be able to apply the energy and the effort to ramp your practice up gradually, slowly, and surely to get to the actual results of the Eightfold Path. Thanks, teacher. Hello, teacher. Uh, question on right concentration. Um, the fourth jhana, it says, beyond pleasure and pain, could you uh, give an example of this? Yeah, so oftentimes when people first start learning about the path to enlightenment, they see that, okay, we're going to be eliminating pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And they don't understand that these are conditioned feelings. That ultimately what you're going to get to is you're going to get to this unconditioned mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is permanent. It doesn't arise. It doesn't change. It doesn't fade away. It's just always there. It's permeating in the mind all the time. 
Well, when we're early in practice and we don't understand what enlightenment is because we haven't seen what enlightenment is like, we haven't experienced it, it's hard for someone to really fathom what enlightenment is until you're actually experiencing it or getting glimpses at it. So these pleasant feelings and these painful feelings, if we'd like to focus in on those, these are conditioned feelings that, okay, I got a new pair of shoes, so I feel this pleasure. Or my new shoes got stolen, so I feel this pain. Or I got this new job, so I feel pleasure. Oh, I got laid off, so I feel pain. So in the unenlightened mind, prior to the jhanas, we're experiencing this constant pleasure and pain based on agreeable and disagreeable contact that we have through the six sense bases. And what the Buddha is saying is this fourth jhana is beyond that, that you're not experiencing that same level of depth of this conditioned pleasure and this conditioned pain. You're still going to be experiencing discontentedness, but it's going to be diminished as part of this fourth jhana. So he's saying it's beyond this constant pleasure and pain of conditioned feelings. Thank you, teacher. Mm -hmm. And then you see there the words where he says, and purified by equanimity, that equanimity is that evenness of temper, calmness, composure, especially in difficult situations. That's what really helps to bring the mind into the middle where it's diminished a lot of the discontentedness and it experiences that beyond pleasure and pain. Well, no more questions, teacher. All right, let's move on to the next chapter. Yes, uh, before we go to the next volunteer, uh, if you would be kind to share uh, the chapters. Oh. I think they are displayed on YouTube and Facebook, but not in Zoom. Sure, there we go. Yeah, thanks, teacher. Let's go to uh, Miranda. Where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. Once Kavada, this order of monks, the thought occurred to a certain monk, I wonder where the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element are eliminated without remainder. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. He went to the heavenly realm of the four great kings and asked the question. When none of them could answer the, the question, the monk went to the 33 gods who said, we don't know, but Saka, Lord of the gods, may know. Saka told the monk to ask the Yama heavenly beings, the Siyama, the Tusita heavenly beings, the Santusita, Nimanarati, Sunamita, Paranamita Vesavati, Heavenly Beings, Vasavati, Brahma's associates, and all the way to the Great Brahma. The Great Brahma avoided to answer and finally said that the Heavenly Beings believe there is nothing Brahma does not know, but the truth is, he does not know where the four great elements cease without remainder. It is the monk's fault that he did not ask the perfectly enlightened one. In the end, the monk went back to the perfectly enlightened one. So that monk, as swiftly as a strong man might flex or unflex his arm, vanished from the Brahma world and appeared in my presence. He prostrated himself before me, then sat down to one side and said, Venerable sir, where are the four great elements, or the earth element, the fire, water element, the fire element, and the wind element, eliminated without remainder? 
I replied, Monk, once upon a time, sea-traveling merchants, when they set sail on the ocean, took in their ship a land-sighting bird. When they could not see the land themselves, they released this bird. The bird flew to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north. It flew to the zenith overhead and to the intermediate points of the compass. If it saw land anywhere, it flew there. But if it saw no land, it returned to the ship. In the same way, monk, you have been as far as the Brahma world, searching for an answer to your question and not finding it, and now you come back to me. But monk, you should not ask a question in this way, where are the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element, eliminated without remainder. Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, and fire, and wind find no footing? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are name and form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is quiet, immeasurable, all radiant, that's where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, there, name and form are wholly destroyed. With the elimination of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Thank you, Miranda. Very good job pronouncing all of those words and uh, different heavenly beings. So to explain this chapter, we need to understand the four great elements. During the lifetime of the Buddha, and even now today in traditional medicine, the body is described through these four elements or four categorizations, where today we might say we have tissue, we have bones, we have ligaments, we have tendons, you know, cartilage, you know, fluids. We have different things like this that we describe in the body based on our modern science. 2,500 years ago, they described the body, but they described it through what they understood, which was these four elements. And this is a method of understanding the body and then ultimately diagnosing sickness and illness and prescribing actual medicines and part of traditional medicine. So when the Buddha is talking about the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the wind element, he's actually talking about the physical body. And these four elements are related to the earth, is related to the solids in the body. The water is related to the liquids in the body. The fire is related to the temperature of the body. And the wind is related to the movement, like how like our intestines have feces that moves through and out the rectum or how the blood moves in the body. But the blood itself is a liquid, it's water, right? So these four elements are used to describe the body. And then sometimes people talk about this fifth element, which is space, or some people call it ether. This is like the lack of the other four elements. So if you think about like the space inside the intestines or the space inside the nostril, that there's no element there, it's just empty space. There's no earth, there's no water, there's no fire, there's no wind, there's just kind of this empty space. So some people call that a fifth element or some people don't. But nonetheless, that's what he's talking about here when he's talking about the four great elements. Where do earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing? What he's saying is, where does this physical body no longer get created over and over again? And he also talks about it down here where he discusses name and form. When he talks about name and form, this he describes in dependent origination, 
which is in volume five, chapter 14. We're going to be studying that in a matter of about four or five weeks. Name and form is how he also describes the physical body, but he includes some other things with it besides just the physical body itself. So the elements are to categorize the body and then name and form is to kind of lump the physical body together with some other aspects, the five aggregates and contact as well. So here what he's guiding the student to is how to ask this question of not where this physical body is eliminated without remainder. He's saying, you know, that's not a appropriate question, essentially, that it's not that we're trying to eliminate this physical body necessarily. What we're doing as part of this path to enlightenment and eliminating discontentedness, and once we do, we will no longer experience rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. Having done so, then these four elements will not find footing. They will not be established. This physical body will not be established any longer once we've attained enlightenment, no longer experiencing discontentedness upon death, this physical body, these four elements will no longer find footing. They will no longer be established to create a new existence or a new life. That's what he's talking about here. What questions do you guys have on this? A question for this one, teacher. All right. Let's go on to the next one. Yeah, let's go to Manal. Where consciousness is quieted, where consciousness is quieted, immeasurable, all radiant, that's where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the elimination of consciousness, this is all destroyed. All right. Thanks, Manal. So this is picking up essentially where we were just talking about how by understanding dependent origination and all the steps that create discontentedness and create rebirth, by you understanding all those 12 steps, you can actually eliminate and unravel the conditions that are creating discontentedness and that are creating rebirth. Essentially, what you get to once you have unraveled all of that stuff, then consciousness is no longer established. Consciousness is quieted is what the Buddha is talking about here. And then when consciousness has been all radiant, which means you've eliminated the pollution of mind, having attained enlightenment, now there's this brightness, there's this brilliance in the mind, and the mind and the consciousness has essentially been quieted. It's stable, it's steady, it's unshakable. And that's where the earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. That's where rebirth will no longer occur because consciousness has been purified. There's this radiance. Still, the physical body is going to die. Still, the physical body and the mind are going to separate. But there's no longer this continuous rebirth as a result of a polluted consciousness. So it's craving desire attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness that is the fuel that causes rebirth. That's also what causes discontentedness. Back to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, you understand that craving desire attachment is what causes discontentedness. That's also what causes rebirth as well. But when that's been purified from the mind, 
the consciousness has been quieted, it's now bright, it's now brilliant, it's all radiant. And from there, you will no longer experience any more discontentedness for the rest of this life. And there will no longer be any further rebirth to experience misery or despair or sorrow or grief in any future life either. Their name and form are wholly destroyed, meaning the conditions that create this physical body, i.e. a polluted consciousness, is no longer in existence. Once the polluted consciousness has been eradicated, now there's this all-radiant consciousness, then because we've eradicated the conditions that cause rebirth, then there will no longer be a new physical form, so name and form are wholly destroyed. What questions do you guys have on this one? My name has a question. Yes, good uh, Yes, David. If uh, name and form relate to the physical body, um, I wanted to um, sort of clarify how, how is it that name, specifically uh, perception and volitional formation, how do those specifically relate to the physical self? So this goes to the five aggregates that the five aggregates the Buddha talks about what makes a being a being? What is a living being? And he says it's form, which is the physical form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, or those choices and decisions, and the consciousness itself. If there's these five things, then we have a living being. So name is the feelings, the perceptions, the volitional formations, he also puts contact in there, and then the consciousness, and then form is the physical form. He just kind of split that out. So if we have these things, then we have a living being. So by eradicating the pollution in the mind, then we won't have these pollution of feelings, perceptions, and volitional formations, and then a being is no longer going to come into existence. So by having a physical form, by having a mind or consciousness, then we have feelings, perceptions, and volitional formations. And if we don't have the physical form and the consciousness has been purified, then we no longer have these feelings, perceptions, and volitional formations that will come about in a future life. In this life, you're still going to have feelings, you're still going to have perceptions, you're still going to have volitional formations or choices and decisions. But the enlightened mind isn't going to cling to these things. So you will still have certain opinions, you'll still have certain views, you'll still have certain decisions that you make as being an enlightened being, but you won't hold on to those so tightly that it's going to cause discontentedness in the mind. But this is how the physical form and the consciousness coming together, once you've got that, along with the feelings, perceptions, and volitional formations, that's what makes a being a being. Well, thanks, teacher. No more question. All right. Chapter 114. Yes. The conditioned monks. There are these three characteristics that define the conditioned. What three? An arising is seen, a vanishing is seen, and its alteration, while it persists, is seen. These are the three characteristics that define the conditioned. Okay, this is where you can understand 
conditioned feelings versus unconditioned feelings. The next chapter is about the unconditioned. So conditioned feelings or a conditioned object, it's going to arise, it's going to vanish. That's the way the Buddha describes it. And then there's going to be this alteration or this change. The way I like to describe it is there's going to be this arising, there's this change, and then there's this fading away, right? The Buddha orders it a little bit differently. So if you have happiness, it's a conditioned feeling because you see that the happiness arises, it changes, and then it fades away. It's impermanent because it's a conditioned feeling. Or if you have sadness, you see the sadness arise, you see it change, and then you see it fade away because it's a conditioned feeling. Or boredom, it arises, it changes, and it fades away. The reason why is because these feelings are conditioned on something impermanent. So I got a new pair of shoes. That's the condition. The condition is the new pair of shoes. And now because the mind has based its inner feelings on this condition of getting a new pair of shoes, I see this arising of happiness. And now after I have this shoes for a week or two or three, they start to change. The shoes start to change. So now my feelings start to change. I'm not so happy with them anymore. Maybe I got blisters or maybe they've gotten dirty or maybe I just saw somebody else has the same pair of shoes and the mind doesn't like that. So now the feelings start to change and now that happiness fades away and now I'm displeased with these shoes and now the mind's back where it started from. Or if you bought these new pair of shoes, you experience this happiness, now they get dirty and muddy and now you have these painful feelings because the mind was craving and clinging for these shoes to stay permanently clean. Now when you see this alteration or this change in the object of the new shoes, now your feelings change about those shoes as well. They're no longer happy feelings related to these shoes. The mind has this sadness or this anger because now the shoes are dirty. But this is because the mind is basing its feelings on this condition of the shoes rather than just recognize the impermanence of these shoes that, okay, I bought the new pair of shoes. I need those because I need to walk around and protect my feet. And then when I buy them, I already know they're impermanent. So they're going to get old anyway. So I'm not going to base my inner feelings on these shoes. I'm just going to purchase these shoes in order to use them to protect the feet. And sure, I'll try to take care of them. I'll try to keep them looking new. I'll try to ensure that I care for them and maybe clean them every once in a while or polish them if I need to because I like having nice looking shoes. But the whole time the mind isn't clinging to it, craving, wanting to keep these shoes looking permanent. I'm just taking care of them as a way to ensure that I don't have to keep buying the next pair of shoes and the next pair of shoes and the next pair of shoes. I'll have to do that anyway. But if I can take care of these shoes for a little while, then it will kind of allow me to benefit from these shoes for a longer and longer period of time. So in this situation, if you have conditioned feelings and you're conditioning that on the shoes, then you're going to experience this arising of happiness, this change and this fading away. And as long as you do that, then you're also going to experience this displeasure, this sorrow, or this sadness arise, change, and fade away. 
This is what the unenlightened mind does is it has these conditioned feelings because of its basing its inner feelings on some condition. So this impermanence that the Buddha talks about, it's on conditioned objects. So this physical body, since we've been talking about that, this physical body is a conditioned object. At one time, it didn't exist. It arose through being in the womb of a mother. It was born into the world. So it matured and it growed, but it's been gradually changing over time. And eventually it will fade away. This physical body will die and it will just dissolve and decompose because it's a conditioned object. So what you're doing as part of this path is training the mind to not have these conditioned feelings, basing its inner feelings on some condition. Because as long as it's basing its inner feelings on some condition, the mind's going to experience this up and down, up and down, up and down, because it is longing for pleasant feelings based on some condition. And as long as it's longing for those pleasant feelings, when that condition doesn't exist because it's impermanent, it's now going to experience these painful feelings. And that's a constant struggle and very difficult to live life that way, where the mind is constantly going up and down and up and down. So that's what the Buddha is describing here is conditioned objects are impermanent. They will arise, they will change, and they will fade away. And even though we say conditioned object like a material object, we're also referring to feelings here too, that these are conditioned. They Happiness arises, changes, fades away. Sadness arises, changes, fades away. But now when we move to the next chapter, you'll see that an unconditioned mind doesn't experience that. But let's see what questions you guys have on this. Well, it's very clear that being attached to conditioned objects is unwise because they will not last forever. But do you agree that clinging or being attached to permanent things is wise? No, you shouldn't cling or crave anything permanent. That's going to lead to discontentedness. So anything that is in the world, you shouldn't hold on to any of it mentally, right? You need certain things like you're probably going to need a a mobile phone. You're probably going to need some clothing. You're going to need a pair of shoes and you're going to need a shelter to live in. These kind of things, we can have them, but it's when the mind wants to hold on to them, keeping them permanent that then the mind is going to experience discontentedness when it holds on to things permanently. Like this house that we live in, it's a concrete house. And when we bought it, of course, it was brand new. Everything was brand new. Whereas if somebody buys this house and craves for it to stay permanent, when we see that little crack on the wall and the concrete, the mind's going to be discontent because of that crack. It doesn't understand impermanence. And now it feels sad or it feels angry that there's this crack rather than just understanding that it's impermanent. So even things that are permanent, like unconditioned love or this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, if you crave that or you cling to it, it's still going to cause discontentedness. So you shouldn't have any craving or any clinging and you have to work towards uh, accomplishing that goal through your practice. Thanks, teacher. One more question. All right. So let's go to the next one. The next volunteer is Nick. The unconditioned. Monks 
There are these three characteristics that define the unconditioned. What three? No arising is seen, no vanishing is seen, and no alteration while it persists is seen. These are the three characteristics that define the unconditioned. All right. Thanks, Nick. So this is the exact opposite of the chapter we just read where the Buddha is saying, okay, there's these unconditioned experiences that we have where there is no arising, there is no vanishing, and there is no alteration or change. So I say that a little bit differently. I say there's no arising, there's no change, and there's no vanishing or fading away. That's what I describe when I describe the enlightened mind of this peacefulness. This peacefulness in the enlightened mind, once the mind is enlightened, is this peacefulness, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The enlightened being wakes up peaceful all day long, their mind's peaceful, they go to sleep peaceful. The mind is just always peaceful. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The same thing with the calmness, or the serenity, or the contentedness, or the joy of the enlightened mind. It's just always there. It doesn't need to buy a new pair of shoes to experience joy. When an enlightened being knows they need to buy a new pair of shoes, they will go buy a new pair of shoes and they will use those pair of shoes, but they're not deriving their joy based on the pair of shoes because the mind already has the wisdom to understand that that just is setting yourself up to fail. And the mind has already been trained to no longer base its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. So an enlightened being will still need to buy a pair of shoes or buy a new computer or buy something else, but it won't derive its pleasant feelings from these impermanent conditions. It will just acquire the possessions that they need in order to sustain their life. And they just see it as part of their normal life that, okay, I need a new computer, so I'll buy a new computer. Or I need a new pair of shoes. Okay, let me just buy a new pair of shoes. Or, okay, I'd like to get more income in my job. So let me do a really good job in my career and work towards getting a new income and a higher income so that I can better support my family. And these are just things that an enlightened being will pursue as a goal, as an objective, as an interest, but they won't derive satisfaction from them because the mind already knows that these things are impermanent. So if the mind allows itself to experience these pleasant feelings based on a new job and a new income, an enlightened being already knows that new job, that new income is impermanent. That new job is not permanent. So if you allow the pleasant feelings to arise based on getting this new job, well, what happens when you get laid off? Or what happens when the company goes out of business? Or what happens when maybe you become disabled and you can no longer perform that job anymore? What happens then is if you allow the pleasant feelings to arise based on this new job, then you're going to experience painful feelings when you can no longer do that job. And that's why an enlightened being knows that, okay, I'll get this new job and I'm working towards it, but I'm not going to derive any kind of inner satisfaction based on this new job because that's just setting myself up to fail that as soon as I can no longer do that job anymore for whatever reason, then I'm going to experience painful feelings. And why would I be interested in putting myself through that? I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in this lasting satisfaction, this permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. In order to do that, you need to let go of basing your inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. 
And once you do, then there's no arising, there's no changing, and there's no fading away. So with conditioned love, it's not actually love, but what we call love is really craving, desire, attachment. It's okay if you meet these conditions, I am now in love with you. And as long as you meet those conditions, I will love you. But when you stop meeting those conditions, I will no longer love you anymore. That's actually not love. That's conditioned experiences. That's a condition of craving, desire, attachment that the mind is now kind of selfishly saying, well, I love you as long as you meet my conditions. And then I'm out of love with you when you no longer meet my conditions. Well, what unconditioned love is, is it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. And for those of you guys that are parents, you probably understand what conditioned love is, is that before your child was ever even born into this world, you hadn't even met them yet. And you already loved this being before they ever entered the world. And then once they entered the world, no matter what they do, you will always love them. Even they steal money or they lie to you or they hit you or they hit a friend or they don't turn in their homework on time or they get a bad grade in school. It doesn't really matter what they do. You will always love them. Of course, you're guiding them and trying to help them make wiser and wiser decisions in life to improve their conduct and so forth. But no matter what they do as a parent, you have this unconditional love for them that you wake up in the morning, you love your child all day long, no matter what they do, you might disagree with their intentions, their speech and their actions, but you still love them. And then you go to sleep and you still love your child regardless. So this is what you can understand of as unconditioned love. That's what true love is, is there's no arising, there's no changing, there's no fading away. Because you didn't need your child to meet certain conditions to be able to fall in love with them, you can't fall out of love with your child. It's just always there. It always persists. So the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, that is the enlightened mind, the practitioner has removed all the conditions, all the pollution that is causing the mind to go up and down, up and down. It's no longer having these conditioned feelings where it's basing its inner feelings on some condition. It's removed all those conditions, which is described in dependent origination. You've removed all those conditions that are causing the mind to go up and down. And now you have this unconditioned, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that it's no longer basing its inner feelings on some condition. The mind has been unconditioned. It's been purified. It's now experiencing permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And you will also be practicing unconditional love where you can just love all beings because they're beings and you just love all beings. You no longer fall in love with people and out of love with people. You just love all beings regardless. You see the things that they might do that you disagree with in terms of their intention, speech and actions. But that doesn't change your inner feelings because you're not basing your feelings on the condition of their behavior. Your feelings are unconditioned. You have this unconditional love as well as these other qualities. You've removed the pollution of mind where you're basing your inner feelings on some condition. 
What questions do you guys have on this one? What questions do you have on this one, teacher? All right. Chapter 116. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Miranda. Seeing non-self with correct wisdom. Monks, form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations, choices and decisions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is discontentedness. What is discontented is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one sees this thus as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, one holds no more views concerning the future. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, and volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated by the taint, from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. By being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana, enlightenment. One understands destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is like one of those teachings where the Buddha puts a lot of things in a very short discussion. I'm sure he said things before this and after this, but there's a lot going on here. So these first couple of paragraphs, he's essentially talking about the impermanence of the physical body and the impermanence of this being. So he's talking about the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates. This is what makes a living being a living being. And he's saying, okay, this is all impermanent. This living being, this body, this mind, all these feelings, perceptions, and choices and decisions that we make, they're all impermanent. They're not permanent. That's the first paragraph. Then the second paragraph, he's saying, okay, because these things are impermanent, essentially, if you cling to them, he didn't say that here, but he does in other places. If you cling to them, it's going to create discontentedness, right? And then he says, okay, what is discontentedness is non-self. So this physical body is not the self. So he talks about the five aggregates at first, but then he talks about the three universal truths of impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self. And he's saying these five aggregates, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So not only is this physical form not you and who you are, this feelings are not you. These perceptions are not you. These volitional formations or choices and decisions, that's not you. And this consciousness, it's not you. It's not who you are. It's not a permanent self. And even this discontentedness that we experience, if you're experiencing anger or sadness or sorrow or happiness, excitement, elation, boredom, loneliness, this is not you either. So the Buddha is helping you to see that there is no permanent self here because all of these things are impermanent. So how could they be a permanent self? This is not mine. This physical body is not mine. You're essentially renting it for the time being. 
this I am not. I am not these feelings or perceptions or volitional formations or this consciousness. This is not myself. This is not who I am as a person. So if you were thin when you were younger in life and now you've gained some extra weight and your mind feels discontent about that, that's because the mind is clinging to this thin form, this thin physical body that you had when you were younger. It's not recognizing the impermanence that, hey, there's impermanence here, that this physical body can't stay looking exactly the same as it did younger in life. You've got a little extra fat on there because that's impermanence. That's the way this world works. Or if you had really you know, certain type of skin or clarity of skin when you were younger, and now that you've gotten older, there's some wrinkles in the skin. Well, this is the aging process. This is impermanence. You can't stay with that young, youthful appearance all the way through your life because this physical body is impermanent. But none of this is you. This isn't who you are. So if you cling and you hold on to this stuff, wanting it to be permanent, then the mind's going to be discontent because of it. So you just let it go and you realize, ah, got a new wrinkle. There's some impermanence. Oh, got a little bit extra fat there. Okay, well, maybe I'll do a little exercise. Maybe I won't. You know, let's understand that this isn't me. This isn't who I am. I'd like to maintain my physical health and ensure that I've got health, but I don't derive satisfaction through the physical appearance of how this physical body looks because this body isn't me and who I am. Then the Buddha goes into talking about bringing the mind into the present moment. You know, he says, you know, when one sees this as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. So in the past, if you were thin, but now you're not, don't hold on to the past, holding on to that view of how this body used to look in the past. When one holds on to no more views concerning the past, one holds on to no more views concerning the future. Desiring, craving, wanting this skin to now return back to its youthful appearance or wanting or craving or desiring for this body to look the way that it did in the past. So if you don't hold on to the past, then there won't be this longing and holding on to the future. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving because you're not craving and yearning for something to happen in the future. You've let go of this youthful appearance and you realize that you can't hold on to that. So therefore, you're not craving it for the future. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings, right? We no longer have this discontentedness where we're angry or frustrated that we no longer have this youthful appearance. No more strong feelings towards form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. And it is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. The taints are the pollution of mind, the ten fetters, that you need to investigate those. Once you get into the jhanas, start investigating those more and more closely so that you can start eliminating those aspects of the mind that is polluting the mind. Once the mind is liberated from those taints or those ten fetters, then being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated. 
being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana or enlightenment. So by eliminating those taints, those ten fetters, these are some of the results that the mind is going to experience as it's experiencing nibbana. Once the mind is experiencing this, the mind has attained enlightenment. Now one understands destroyed is birth, meaning there's no longer going to be rebirth. You've escaped the cycle of rebirth because you can see for yourself that the mind is perfectly content. It's got that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So you know, okay, the mind has not experienced any discontentedness for one year, or two years, or three years. Oh, the teachings of the Buddha lead exactly where he said they do, to the elimination of discontentedness. So therefore, I know that I'm not going to be reborn and experience this misery all over again. The holy life has been lived. You know, you've lived this life. You've deeply investigated the teachings. You've gained this wisdom. You've trained the mind. What had to be done has been done. You've cleared out this pollution of the mind. You've done what had to be done in order to escape this cycle of rebirth. There is no more for this state of existence, meaning there is no more birth after that. That's what he's describing here. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Amina has a question. She says, is non-self a form of timelessness where the past and future are irrelevant? I don't think of it directly as part of non-self, but an enlightened mind, yes, is going to think of the past and the future as being irrelevant. But I don't really think of it as part of non-self. But what the Buddha is talking about here is he's just saying, okay, when you stop clinging to the five aggregates from the past, then you will no longer have this yearning for things to be a certain way in the future. And by letting go of the self, yes, it will help you to do that. Because if we've been brought up in a certain way and our mind has been conditioned, maybe by our parents or society, that, oh, you've got to be a lawyer or you've got to be a doctor, and you're clinging to that and holding on to that decision that you maybe made when you were 10 years old or 15 years old, as your feelings change, you might find yourself in a career choice that you kind of decided a long time ago, but it no longer feels right for you. It no longer motivates you in the same way. You're no longer encouraged to perform this role because the mind is clinging to a choice that it made many, many years ago. So by letting go of that self-identity, which is part of the self, that self-image and self-identity, by letting go of that personal existence view, that first fetter, now you can eradicate that identity as I am a doctor, I am a lawyer. And now you can see like, yeah, I really don't enjoy this. And why do I keep putting myself through this every day? I would rather just go do this simple thing over here and I would be much more content with that and feel like that's much more fulfilling for me. So that's what the Buddhist kind of relating here to is not clinging and holding on to form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. And by doing so, you eliminate the self-image, no longer trying to project that and be perceived in the world in a certain way, no longer holding on to the self-identity and wanting to be perceived in a certain way. You can just remain at ease and reside in the present moment, no longer trying to be perceived in a certain way in the world. And therefore, the mind can't be shaken up by what other people say or do. 
Thanks, teacher. No more question. All right, let's go to the next chapter. Yes, let's go to Ronald. No desire for the nutriment one attains enlightenment. If monks, there is no desire for the nutriment edible food or for the nutriment contact or for the nutriment of volitional formations, choices, decisions, or for the nutriment consciousness. If there is no excitement, if there is no craving, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no declining of name and form. Where there is no declining of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Suppose, moms, there was a house, a hall with a peaked roof, with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, Venerable Sir. If there were no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, Venerable Sir. If there were no earth, where would it become established? On the water, Venerable Sir. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, Venerable Sir. So to moms, if there is no desire for the nutriment, edible food, for the nutriment contact, for the nutriment of volitional formations, for the nutriment consciousness, consciousness, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no declining of name and form. Where there is no declining of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, grief, and despair. All right. Thank you, Manol. Here, this is similar to what the Buddha was talking about previously with the four elements and, you know, how do we essentially get to the point where there is no longer renewed existence? There is no longer this continuous rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. And here, what he's talking about is eliminating that craving and desire to essentially feed these cravings, craving for certain foods or this craving for contact with others or this craving for and clinging to volitional formations or choices and decisions and this craving and clinging for consciousness. He's using this word nutriment, which is like essentially the way of feeding these things and craving and clinging is what's feeding those. And by feeding those things and clinging and craving, there's going to be excitement. So when there is no desire, there is no craving, this mental longing and strong eagerness to feed these things, to feed the cravings, to feed the desires, to feed the attachments, then there's no excitement. And this is where consciousness does not become established. So it's another way of explaining what he already explained in the previous chapters. And then he gives this analogy where he explains and helps you to see that, yeah, if there is no wall, then the sun can't shine on the wall. If there's no earth, 
then the sun can't shine on the earth. If there's no water, then the sun can't shine on the water. Where does the sun become established? Well, it can't become established anywhere because there's no material object for it to land its beams on. So the Buddha is explaining the same thing that when there's no desire, when there's no craving, desire, attachment for these things, then the consciousness can't become established and therefore there isn't going to be renewed existence picking up these five aggregates again, creating this name and form again. And when there is no more birth, there's no aging or death, then there's no sorrow, grief, and despair, this discontentedness. So it's just another way of explaining how to unravel this cycle of rebirth is to purify the consciousness and not allow the consciousness to become established through craving and clinging. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No more questions, sir. Okay, let's go to the next chapter. Yes, uh, the next volunteer is the neck. How should the nutriment edible food be seen? And how much should the nutriment edible food be seen? Suppose a couple, husband and wife, had taken limited provisions and were traveling through a desert. They had with them their only son, dear and beloved. Then in the middle of the desert, their limited provisions would be used up and exhausted while the rest of their desert remains to be crossed. The husband and wife would think, our limited provisions have been used up and exhausted while the rest of the desert remains to be crossed. Let us kill our only son, dear and beloved, and prepare dried and spiced meat. By eating our son's flesh, we can cross the rest of the desert. Let not all three of us perish. Then monks, the husband and wife, would kill their only son, dear and beloved, prepare dried and toasted meat, and by eating their son's flesh, they would cross the rest of the desert. While they were eating their son's flesh, they would beat their breasts and cry, Where are you, our only son? Where are you, our only son? What do you think, monks? Would they eat that food for amusement or for the enjoyment or for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness? No, venerable sir. Wouldn't they eat that food for the sake of the crossing of the desert? Yes, venerable sir. It is in such a way, monks, that I say nutriment edible food to be seen. When the nutriment edible food is fully understood, craving for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood. When craving for the five cords of sensual pleasure is fully understood, there is no fetter bound by which a noble disciple might come back again to this world. All right. Thanks, Nick. So the Buddha used a pretty graphic story here to help you understand how to look at food is that rather than look at food as for the pure enjoyment of the tongue, which then produces pleasant feelings in the mind, that we should look at it in order to sustain our life. And that's really what food is meant for. And one of the ways for someone to teach in an oral tradition and then really teach these teachings even today is sometimes we use these more graphic stories and depictions in order to help it really make an imprint on your mind to be able to retain the teachings so that when you're eating food in daily life, 
that you don't think of it as just to please the mind and please the tongue, that you're doing this, you're eating this food in order to sustain the health of the physical body, and that's the reason why you eat. And in doing so, you'll actually find that you'll make wiser choices about your food in terms of the health and the content of your food, because oftentimes when we're just trying to please the tongue, we might go to junk food or food that isn't really necessarily that good for our our physical health, but instead we're just trying to please the tongue and the mind. So the Buddha is describing here that this couple that's crossing the desert with their son, if they needed to have food, but they still had more desert to cross, if they killed their son and actually ate his meat, would they be doing that out of amusement and just to you know, please the tongue or would they do it just in order to sustain their life in order to cross the desert? Well, of course, the answer is they would do it just to cross the desert. I don't think that you know we would kill our son. Like if I was crossing a desert with my wife and my son and we ran out of food, then I would just die. I, I wouldn't kill my wife or my son in order to eat, but the Buddha is using this as a story to help you understand food. He's not telling you to kill the third person in order to sustain your life. He's just using it as an example. So don't take this as if the Buddha is suggesting that we should kill a third being in order to sustain the life of the other two, because of course he teaches not to kill, that we should have compassion for all living beings. So I wouldn't kill anybody to cross the desert. I would just perish on my own and if the others are still alive and they choose to eat the flesh of this physical body then so be it but i wouldn't actually kill somebody in order to sustain this life but what he talks about here and what he ultimately gets to is understanding the five chords of sensual pleasure if you understand the six sense bases and how the mind has craving and longing through these six sense bases the eyes ears nose tongue bodily contact in the mind, well, the five chords of sensual pleasure are based on the eyes, nose, ears, the tongue, and the body. The eye is the internal sense base. Physical form is the external sense base. The cord is the craving that one has to see certain agreeable physical forms or the ear is the internal sense base. Sound is the external sense base. The craving for this five chords of central pleasure is the craving to hear certain agreeable sounds through the ear, right? And because the mind has these five chords of central pleasure where it wants agreeable forms, agreeable sounds, agreeable odors, agreeable flavors, agreeable physical objects to come in contact with the body, it's chasing after these pleasant feelings because it wants this agreeable contact through these five senses. And when it meets with disagreeable contact, then the unenlightened mind is averse to it and tries to push it away. So it sees this agreeable things and it chases the objects of its affection towards these agreeable things, these agreeable forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and bodily contact. And then when it comes into contact with disagreeable 
forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and bodily contact, it experiences painful feelings, where over here it's experiencing pleasant feelings. Well, what the Buddha is saying is that when you let go of this fetter of sensual desire, having understood craving for the five cords of sensual pleasure, when you fully understand that and you eradicate the craving for the five cords of sensual pleasure, and there's no fetter bound by which the noble disciple might come back to the world again, because at that point you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment, wanting pleasure through the senses. And now because you've eliminated craving, the mind will attain enlightenment, having no longer experiencing discontentedness. And then because you've eliminated craving, not only have you eliminated discontentedness, but you've eliminated rebirth. And there won't be a new birth where you will experience pain, displeasure, misery, and despair as part of a future rebirth. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It's good, Rick. Yes, teacher, I have a question. If we're just supposed to look at food as um, in this way, just to sustain life, like for example, if you just have fruits in the morning and vegetables at night, having it be Thanksgiving in, in, in the U.S. Um, this week, there's a lot of pies around, you know, when, when is it enough? If we're household practitioners and, and we're enjoying the sensual pleasures, are we supposed to restrain ourselves at all time? Or, I mean, like what, what I'm getting at here is, is it okay to have snacks? Is it okay to have, you know, after you're done with dinner, you know, a couple hours, like maybe before bed, or if you wake up in the middle of the night, and you're a little hungry and you're like, ah, there's some pie from Thanksgiving. We had a little slice, put a couple of scoops of ice cream on it. You know, can you do that? Or, or, I mean, as long as you're restraining yourself, like, you know, normally you, you eat clean. So when is that enough? When can you not, um, you know, look at food this way? You, if you know what I'm getting at. I understand. So, there's no harm in having foods like pie or ice cream or candy or these kind of things. The body can ingest those and the mind experiences, oh, wow, that's chocolate. Tastes really good. Or, oh, wow, that's pumpkin pie. It tastes quite nice. The mind can experience those things and still attain enlightenment. The problem isn't the pie. The problem isn't the ice cream. The problem isn't the chocolate. The problem is if the mind clings to it or craves it. And now it wants these things and it craves these things and it has a desire for these things. Therefore, it's going to feel discontent when these things don't exist. If you've ever been in a situation where you have had a certain item at home and you're like, oh, that chocolate bar I bought three days ago, can't wait till I get home and eat that chocolate bar. And then you arrive home and someone else is eating that chocolate bar. That's where the mind then might become discontent if there's craving or clinging, wanting that chocolate bar so badly. So the chocolate bar isn't the problem. You can eat the chocolate bar. It's when the mind longs for it and craves it that it's going to then experience discontentedness. So the Buddha is not saying to never have enjoyable tasting food. You can have enjoyable tasting food. It's just that while you're eating that enjoyable tasting food, don't cling to it. Don't crave it. Don't want it to be permanent and know that some point in the future, you're not going to have chocolate. You're not going to have ice cream. You're not going to have pumpkin pie. You need to eat 
fruits and vegetables and rice and these kind of things to sustain your life. Don't make your eating habits all about pleasing the tongue and pleasing the mind, but ensure that you're eating the food that you need to sustain your life and you can enjoy the food. Just don't cling or crave it because that's what's going to create the discontentedness. I understand, sir. So as long as you're not uh, excited or, or upset over it, I guess going to a previous chapter, beyond pleasure and pain about it, it's all right. If it's there, you can have it. And if it's not there, as long as you're content, it's, it's not a big deal. Right. You wake up in the middle of the night, you're like, oh, let me go get a piece of pumpkin pie. And you mosey on over the refrigerator and Oh, it's all gone. Okay, well, I guess I'm not going to have pumpkin pie. I'll have something else. And that's where the mind is content and peaceful. It's not clinging or craving. But if you come and you're like, oh, where's that pumpkin pie? Who ate that pumpkin pie? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I wanted that pumpkin pie so bad. That's where there's now discontentedness and it's going to motivate unskillful intention, speech, and actions. And now we cause harm in the world. So, being content and peaceful or being satisfied with what is. So it's not a matter of eliminating enjoyable tasting food. It's a matter of eliminating that cord, that craving, that cord of central pleasure, that craving for the pleasure. That's what you're trying to eliminate. That's what he's talking about down here is eliminating the cord, eliminating the desire, the longing, the yearning for the pleasure through the senses. But when you're eating that pumpkin pie, if it's actually there, it's like, oh, it tastes good. Okay. Yeah, it tastes good. But I know that this isn't a permanent thing that I'm going to always experience. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Let's go to Manal. Teacher David, just um, piggybacking on Nick's um, questioning um, of this chapter. Um, if there is... Um, someone on the end of someone who's preparing the foods um, and uh, preparing and presenting the items for a, a festival or a feast or a holiday, um, wouldn't the senses be engaged at that point if you are the person that's making the food? I'm trying to evaluate whether um, in preparation you're you, there isn't an ability to eliminate um, the sort of goal of having this food experience be pleasant and pleasant for others. So um, I am questioning that right now. Yeah, there's no harm in putting loving kindness into preparing food and working to ensure that the food has a pleasant taste. That's completely fine. The problem becomes when the mind allows itself to cling to these pleasant feelings. So another way to think about this is if we separate the food, let's not think about food for a moment. Let's think about praise. Like you can't stop somebody from praising you. People are going to say, oh, Mano, you're a beautiful woman or, oh, you're so smart. You're so intelligent. You're so friendly. You're so loving. People are going to say these things to you throughout your day. And that's going to come to you. But what the Buddha is teaching you is reside in the middle, not allowing the mind to arise pleasant feelings just because you're hearing all this agreeable speech. Because as long as you allow the mind to arise pleasant feelings based on this agreeable speech, when you hear the disagreeable speech, you're going to feel painful feelings as a result. So when you hear those praises, 
Don't allow it to arise arrogance or pride. Maybe you acknowledge it. Maybe you say, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate your sincerity or whatever you say to somebody to thank them for their kind words. But internally, you don't allow the mind to arise these pleasant feelings because therefore, if you do, it's only a matter of time before the painful feelings come in. So the same thing with food is when you prepare food, there's no harm in you preparing deliciously, wonderfully tasting food. But then when you eat it, you don't allow the mind to arise these pleasant feelings like, oh my goodness, this is such amazing, amazing food. I want to eat this like now and forever, right? You don't allow those feelings to come up in the mind because if you cling to it, then every meal you make is not going to be of that same quality because you're not going to have the same ingredients. You're not going to have the same amount of time, all these impermanent variables that went into making this highly enjoyable, well-tasting food are not permanent. They're not going to exist permanently. So if we allow our mind to arise pleasant feelings based on these unique conditions of developing this good tasting food, then when those conditions don't exist any longer, we're going to experience this kind of mediocre food. And the mind's like, ah, I don't like this. Like, oh, it's so horrible. So if you don't allow the mind to cling to it, you can sit there and enjoy the food and know like, oh, wow, Manal, you've put out a real spread here. This is an amazing amount of food. And wow, it's so delicious. You put so much time and effort into this. Thank you so much for your attention to the preparing a meal for us. But the mind in that moment, while it's eating that food, needs to understand that that is not permanent. That is not how you're going to experience food every single time. So not allowing the pleasant feelings to arise, but you're still observing and acknowledging, wow, this is great tasting food, but you're not allowing the mind to be swayed to the pleasant feelings, because if you do, then it's only a matter of time before the painful feelings come in when the food doesn't meet that same standard because of impermanence. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. No more questions, Richard. Great time to be talking about this stuff with Thanksgiving. <laughs> so chapter 119. Yeah, Manel is the next volunteer. The end of stress. There being no yearning, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. All right. Thank you, Manal. This is the Buddha describing this yearning, this craving, this desire, this strong eagerness, right? So if you've ever been somewhere, like maybe you're at home and you have this yearning to go on vacation or you're on vacation and you have this yearning to go back home because you don't want to be on vacation anymore, or you're at a certain job and you have a yearning and a craving to go somewhere else. This is the coming and going that the Buddha is talking about, where the mind can't be content with what is and just be satisfied in the present moment. So the Buddha is saying here is there being no yearning, meaning there is no craving, desire, attachment to be somewhere else where you can be content in the present moment, then there's no coming and going. There's no back and forth, always wanting to be somewhere else. The grass is always greener on the other side. So when there is no yearning, there is no craving, desire, attachment for this constant coming and going, 
then there being no coming and going, there is no passing away or arising. What he's saying is there is no conditioned feelings. This arising of pleasant feelings and this passing away or this fading away of painful feelings or of pleasant feelings, these conditioned feelings that he was talking about. So when there is no craving, desire, attachment, there's no coming and going, there's no coming and going, the mind constantly wanting to be somewhere else, not satisfied and content with where it is, then there's no more arising and passing away of these conditioned feelings. When there's no more arising and passing away of these conditioned feelings, then there's neither here nor there, nor a between the two. This is, there's no longer rebirth. There's no longer this wanting to be somewhere else that the mind can just be content with where it is in the present moment. The Buddha is saying this, just this, is the end of stress because now the mind can be at ease wherever it's at. If you're sitting at a recital for your child, reciting some play or some performance, can be content. Or if you're at a concert where there's loud music, okay, you can be content. Or if you're at Thanksgiving dinner and your relatives are speaking about some topic that you'd rather not talk about, you can still be content in that situation. Or if they're talking about something that you really enjoy talking about, you can be content in that situation too. The mind isn't yearning for this coming and going. It's not always looking for the grass is greener on the other side. Whenever there's craving, desire, attachment, whenever there's this yearning, the mind's going to always be wanting to come and go, come and go, come and go. It can't just be stable, steady, and content in the present moment. It always wants to be somewhere else. It can't just be in the present moment, content and peaceful. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? What question is that, Joe? Okay, chapter 120. The mind has attained to the end of craving. Through the round of many births I roamed, without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder, painful is birth again and again. House builder, you're seen, you will not build the house again. All your rafters are broken. The bridge pool is dismantled. Immersed in dismantling, the mind has attained to the end of craving. All right. Thanks, Bossom. So here, the Buddha is talking about rebirth, and he's talking about kind of building this house, meaning this physical body, that as long as there's this roaming and wandering on in the cycle of rebirth, there's, there's no reward in this continuous rounds of being reborn. There's, there's no rest because if you've ever experienced a long day where there's just been craving after craving after craving, it's so exhausting to carry around craving. It's such a burden where you just feel completely wiped out at the end of your day because the mind is just longing and longing and longing and yearning and yearning and yearning, never feeling content because it's just longing for the next thing, the next thing. So the Buddha is saying for himself, and he also talks in other places about all of us have experienced this same thing, that through the rounds of many rebirths, he just says births here, I roamed without reward. There's no reward for continuing to go through all these rebirths, experiencing all this discontentedness. Without rest, 
seeking the house builder, continually building this existence and existence in a new uh, birth. Painful is birth because if there's birth, there's going to be sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Again and again and again and again and again, countless times we've been through this again and again and again and again and again. So now he says, okay, house builder, you've been seen. Meaning, I understand what's causing this constant rounds of rebirth. I understand what keeps propelling this roaming and wandering in this cycle of rebirth. You've been seen craving desire attachment. I know it's you. You're the one that keeps creating this constant rounds of rebirth. You're the house builder. Craving desire attachment is what leads to rebirth. You will not build a house again meaning I'm going to extinguish all this craving, desire, attachment so that you can't experience this new existence. All your rafters are broken. I've extinguished all of this craving, desire, attachment. The ridge pole is dismantled. The ridge pole is the center beam that the rafters are built upon. So the Buddha is like, okay, I've destroyed that. Immersed in dismantling, getting rid of all this craving, desire, attachment through breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, identifying cravings, working to eliminate those, eliminating discontentedness. Whenever you see the mind is off the middle way and it's not in the middle, you observe that with mindfulness and yank it back, cutting that off and letting it go, bringing it back to the middle, constantly working to eliminate craving. The mind has attained to the end of craving. So when the mind is attained to the end of craving, there's no longer going to be any more houses being built because I've now dismantled what keeps creating these rebirths over and over again, which is craving, desire, attachment. That's what he's talking about here. So what questions do you guys have on this one? No question, Mr. Teacher. All right, let's go to the next one. Yes, my name is the next volunteer. This is my instruction to you. Whatever should be done once by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare that I have done for you. These are the feet of trees, monks. These are empty huts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Okay, thanks, Manal. So this is the Buddha kind of motivating and encouraging his students to practice meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation. Why? Because that's what works to eliminate craving along with other things. And if we are complacent and not meditating, then we're going to regret it later. When we experience discontentedness and the mind's angered or frustrated or irritated or any of those other discontent feelings, you're going to regret having not meditated and accumulated the benefits of those. Or if we experience rebirth, you know, we're going to regret that later, having to go through, you know, a whole nother experiences of rebirth again and again and again. So this is the Buddha encouraging us to meditate and be diligent in our practice in doing so. And at the same time, he's sharing the reason why he taught. Why did the Buddha spend 45 years of his life teaching? He was living this life of luxury. He was a prince. He had all these royal riches amazing life, but yet his mind was discontent. 
but yet he stepped down from that and lived this life of humbleness, just accepting donations of food and clothing and shelter and other things just to sustain his life. But yet he dedicated 45 years of his life to helping other people experience this enlightened mental state. Well, why did he do that? Out of compassion for everyone, aspiring for their welfare. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. And that's why he did what he did is he had this overwhelming compassion aspiring for the welfare of all living beings. And then it's meditation, which is the main catalyst to help us to move forward in our practice. But there's all these other steps on the Eightfold Path that are so important that it's not just meditation that we need to practice. We need to practice all these other aspects of the teachings as well. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. All right, chapter 122. Let's go to it. Monk who is perfected in morality, the first discourse. And how, sir, is the monk perfected in morality? Abandoning the taking of life, he resides refraining from taking life. Without stick or sword, diligent, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Thus he has accomplished the morality. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, he resides refraining from taking what is not given, living purely, accept, accepting what, what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Thus he has accomplished the morality. Abandoning unchastity, he lives far from it, distant from the village, practiced of sects. Thus he's accomplished some morality. Abandoning false speech, he resides refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Thus he has accomplished some morality. Abandoning malicious speech, he does not repeat what he has heard. Here to damage of those or repeat here what he has heard there to damage of those. Thus he is a peacemaker of those in conflict and an encourager of those who to come together, rejoicing in peace, loving it, finding joy in it, one who speaks up for peace. Thus he is accomplished in morality. Abandoning harsh speech, he refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, courteous, pleasing and attractive to the multitude. Thus he has accomplished morality. Abandoning idle chatter, he speaks at the right time, what is correct and to the point of teachings and discipline. He is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, meeting the needs of the occasion, well thought out, well-defined and connected with the goal. Thus, he has accomplished morality. All right. Thank you, Nick. So here, this is the Buddha essentially further expanding upon the Eightfold Path. These all directly plug into the Eightfold Path. These first four paragraphs are essentially talking about the five precepts. 
these first three paragraphs are plugging into right action. He's talking about not taking life, not stealing, and not having unchastity. That's part of right action. He expands upon this even further in the five precepts, but here he's talking about it as well. He, he has this layered approach, right? Then this fourth paragraph is part of right speech, and it's also part of the five precepts, that fourth precept that he talks about. But then he goes into three additional paragraphs, further explaining right speech above and beyond what he's explained in other places, like the five factors of well-spoken speech. Here he's giving more content to it. He's giving more descriptive language that helps us to understand the teaching and why we would be interested to practice in this particular way. So that's what he's describing here. One thing that I would like to point out is here where he says, he is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, meeting the needs of the occasion, well thought out, well defined and connected with the goal, right? Like when we speak, we should always make sure that our words are from that perspective, that our words are well thought out, that they're well defined and connected with the goal of the speech that we have. Because if we just blah, 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 with idle chatter, it's putting a burden on the people who are listening to us to figure out what is it that this person is really saying. And it's causing harm if we have idle chatter because it requires the individual who's listening to us to really try to decipher what is it this person's trying to say. But when we can speak in a way that is treasured, meeting with the needs of the occasion, well thought out, well defined and connected with the goal, we ensure that our words are concise and precise in the way that we speak. And then the people who listen and understand and talk to us and are listening to our words, they don't have to work really hard to figure out what it is that we're communicating. This is going to make people more interested to talk to us and listen to us, maybe heave our advice. It actually helps us to become a more influential person is that we're able to influence our family members and our neighbors and help people around us much better if they're not having to work so hard to figure out what we're actually saying. So when your mind is clear and you've cleared out the pollution in the mind, then you should be able to put together well thought out words and be able to communicate that in a very precise and concise way, thus minimizing any kind of burden of the listener to have to figure out what it is that you're saying. And this will really help you in your personal and professional relationships. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right. Chapter 123. Monk, who is perfected in morality. Second discourse. He eats once a day and not at night, refraining from eating at improper times. He avoids watching dancing, singing, music and shows. He abstains from using gardens, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. He avoids using high or wide beds. He avoids accepting gold and silver. He avoids accepting raw grain or raw flesh. He does not accept women and young girls, male or female slaves, sheep and goats, cooks and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares, fields and plots of land. He refrains from running. 
earrings, from buying and, and selling, from cheating, from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery, bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highly highway robbery, and taking food by force. Thus, he is accomplished in morality. All right. Thank you, Bassam. So here the Buddha is raising a much higher level of practice to the monks and the ordained practitioners, helping them see how to really move the mind to enlightenment. And even though this is really directed towards the ordained practitioners, there are certain things that we can glean from this and practice as part of our household life. And household practitioners can really improve their practice by kind of looking at what the monks are practicing, what the ordained practitioners are practicing, and then figuring out ways to incorporate that into our life. So this one thing where he says, you know, eat once a day and not at night, refraining from eating at improper times. The Buddha used to teach to just eat one time a day and to eat before noon. And essentially what he was teaching, and he describes this in other parts of his teachings, is he says we should be moderate in our eating right? That we shouldn't gorge ourselves because this puts a lot of work on the body and it makes it harder for the body to digest food if we're gorging food, particularly late at night and we have these big, huge meals, the body has a hard time to process that. And you'll find that with these big gorging meals that the body actually has a harder time to train the mind because it's so indulgent in having this enormous amount of food. Well, today, you can eat one meal a day if you'd like, but you don't have to. You know, as a household practitioner, your caloric needs and what you need on calorie intake is going to be much higher than an ordained practitioner. An ordained practitioner wakes up, they meditate, they might sweep the temple, they might do some teaching, some studying, some meditation, and things like this. They're just kind of living a very basic, simple life without much physical activity. So for a household practitioner to be able to eat once a day, it's actually quite a challenge. And you would find that if you have children or you have a job and you're going from place to place, that you're going to need more than one meal a day. Even nowadays, most monks will eat two meals a day. Some people say that the food and the caloric value of food during the lifetime of the Buddha was much higher than it is today, that maybe a broccoli was a much higher calorie content than a broccoli today based on the soil and the water and the environmental change that we've experienced that even ordained practitioners will eat twice a day nowadays. And as a household practitioner, you might eat two times or three times or four times a day. It's not that you have to eat once a day, but what you need to do is you need to be moderate in your eating, not have these gorging meals where you just load up on food and then be sure that you're not just doing emotional eating where you're just eating emotionally and for the pleasure of the tongue. So that's what I would say there. And, and you know, whether you eat before noon or midday, which is what the Buddha used to teach, that's not a requirement of enlightenment because our life and our life patterns are very different. There's some people who work a midnight shift to 8 a.m. and the only time for them to eat is they're going to eat just before work at 11 p.m. at night, perhaps. So it's not that we have to conform to this once a day 
and eating only at a certain time, but instead ensure you develop your practice where you look at food as sustaining your life and that you eat in moderation. That's what's important. A ordained practitioner will avoid watching dancing, singing, music, and shows, essentially entertainment, because there's a likelihood for the mind there to have craving towards those things and then inhibit it from attaining enlightenment as a result. Well, in the household life, you might need to go through a period of time where you do kind of significantly decrease or even eliminate entertainment in your life for three months, six months, or a year, and observe that you maybe were filling the mind with listening to music or watching entertainment in order to eliminate boredom. And if that's what you're doing now is that you're in taking in a lot of electronical devices or certain shows and entertainment as a way to ensure that the mind's not bored. Well, when you get away from these things for a period of time and you can see that, oh, there's some boredom and loneliness there, now you can work on the craving desire attachment for dancing, singing, music, and shows, this entertainment, eliminate that craving desire attachment for those things over the period of three, six months or a year. And now once you see that the mind can be perfectly content without those things, now if you choose to kind of gradually reintroduce them into your life, then that's fine because you know that you've eliminated your craving to them and you eradicated the boredom by not having entertainment. You've eradicated that by eradicating the craving. And now you can walk forward and actually start seeing those things again, but your mind won't crave it like you did before. Whereas if you just keep watching these things and you keep indulging in entertainment, you're never going to know if the mind's actually craving it or not, because you just keep fulfilling and filling up your life with all this entertainment. So a wise practitioner at a certain point in time, once you've developed your practice to a certain point, you will choose to most likely set this aside for a period of time. And then once you observe the craving has been eliminated, you might choose to partake in those things occasionally, but without craving desire attachment. He abandons from use these garlands, perfumes, cosmetics. This is how we kind of beautify the body by putting on chains and necklaces and jewelry and makeup and all of these things. This is seeing the physical body as being the self and who you are. And an ordained practitioner isn't going to do these things at all they're going to completely eliminate them. A household practitioner, just like I talked about with entertainment, it would be wise for you to eliminate these things for a period of time and go a period of time where you realize you don't need these things. You don't need rings. You don't need chains. You don't need to beautify this body. You can be content without it. And then when you go a period of time, three months, six months, a year, where you see you don't need those things anymore, if you choose to put back on a wedding ring because that's something you would like to wear and it's nice for you and your life partner to wear that wedding ring, then great. Go ahead and wear that wedding ring. But if you continue to wear it always, 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 then you're going to never know whether it's a craving, desire, attachment. If you ever watch people who wear wedding rings and they do public speaking, they will oftentimes touch their ring almost obsessively. And this is the mind craving comfort. And it's touching that ring constantly. And it feels comfortable when it touches that ring. And that shows that the mind is craving and attached to this ring. 
And the only way that you're going to get rid of this craving is to let go of all this beautification of the body, let it go for a period of time, train the mind to do without it. And then once you realize the mind is perfectly content over six months or a year without these things, then if you choose to bring them back into your life, then go ahead and do that. He avoids use of high beds and wide beds. This is helping the mind to eradicate conceit, that arrogance or pride. By sleeping low to the ground, having your mattress on the floor, and having a bed that's not very luxurious, just a basic simple bed that you need in order to sleep, then this trains the mind to eradicate arrogance and conceit. And by getting up and down off the floor, entering into your bed, whether it's a mattress on the floor or whatever it is, it will gradually slowly train the mind to not see itself as so high and mighty in this high position, but instead it'll help you eradicate any arrogance or pride. So anybody who would like to work on conceits or arrogance and pride, one of the first things you should do is put your bed as low as possible to the floor. This is going to help you to eradicate any conceit and also eliminating any kind of luxurious things. If you've got you know, 40, 50 pillows or 10, 20 pillows in your bed, then, you know, you should probably just bring that down to one or two and just be content with that. You don't need all this comfort of the physical body. And in doing so, it's just going to arise the mind craving central pleasure through the senses. For ordained practitioners during the lifetime of the Buddha, they avoided accepting gold and silver. He wouldn't allow them to have currency or money these valuable things, even not just gold and silver, but things like grain and flesh and beings like women and young girls and male and female slaves and these animals that he's talking about. Because for different reasons, these things are in there for different reasons, but he wasn't interested in having his ordained practitioners crave wealth and material possessions, but instead just live a very simple life. Today, ordained practitioners do have money, but they need to train themselves not to crave it and not desire it. And there's different ways for them to do that. For us household practitioners, we're going to need to have currency and money in our life. We wouldn't be able to survive without having some way of orchestrating spending and buying to acquire certain things that we need in our life. But we need to train the mind to not base our inner feelings on the level of our bank account. If we have $5,000 in our bank account, okay, the mind's content. If we have 500, then okay, the mind's content. No longer basing our inner feelings on the amount of wealth that we've acquired. And if somebody continues to base their inner feelings on those things, then the mind isn't going to experience enlightenment. And there's other things in here the Buddha talks about in terms of cheating and having certain activities which are pretty straightforward but if you guys have questions on these let me know what questions do you guys have on this chapter the question this time teacher all right now the last chapter chapter 124. yes let's go to monk who is perfected in morality third discourse whereas there are some ascetics and brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated are addicted to the destruction of such seeds as are propagated from roots, from stems, from joints, from cuttings, from seeds. A monk refrains from such destruction, thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated 
remain addicted to the enjoyment of stored up goods such as food, drink, clothing, carriages, beds, perfumes, meat, a monk refrains from such enjoyment, thus he is perfected, perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated remain addicted to attending such shows as dancing, singing, music, displays, recitations, hand music, symbols and drums, fairy shows, acrobatic and conjuring tricks, combats of elephants, buffaloes, bulls, goats, rams, cocks, and a quail, fighting with staves, boxing, wrestling, sham fights, parades, maneuvers and military views, a monk refrains from attending such displays, thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated, making their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood as palmistry, divining by signs, portents, dreams, body marks, mouse gnawings, fire oblations, oblations from a ladle, of hus, rice powder, rice grains, ghee oil, from the mouth or of blood, reading the fingertips, house and garden lore, skill and charms, ghost lore, earth house lore, snake lore, poison lore, rat lore, bird lore, prow lore, foretelling a person's lifespan, charms against arrows, knowledge of animals, cries, a monk refrains from such base arts of wrong and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated, making their living by such base arts as predicting an eclipse of the moon, the sun is stark, and, a, and that the sun and moon will on their proper course will go astray, and that a star will go on its proper course will go astray, that there will be a shower of meteors, a blaze in the sky, an earthquake, a thunder, a rising, setting, darkening, brightening of the moon, the sun, the stars, such will be the outcome of these things. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated, making their living by such base arts as predicting good or bad rainfall, uh, good or bad harvest, security, danger, disease, health, or counting, computing, calculating, poetic composition, philosophizing a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas the ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated, making their living in such base arts as arranging the giving and taking in marriage, engagements and divorces, de declaring the time for, saving for spending, excuse me, saving and spending, bringing good or bad luck, procuring abortions, using spells to bind the tongue, binding the jaw, making the hands jerk, causing deafness, getting answers with a mirror, a girl medium, a heavenly being, worshiping the sun or great Brahma god, breathing fire, invoking the goddess of luck, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood, thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated, making their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood as appeasing the heavenly beings and redeeming vows to them, making earth house spells, causing virility or impotence, preparing and consecrating building sites, giving ritual rinsings and bathings, making sacrifices, giving emetics, purges, expectorants, and flamethrowers. Oh giving ear, eye, nose, medicine, 
ointments with counter ointments, eye surgery, surgery, pediatry, using bombs or to counter the side effects of previous remedies. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Thank you, Manal. That was a, a real mouthful. You did very good moving through all of that. So the nature of what the Buddha is describing here is he's looking to keep the monks focused on learning, reflecting, practicing in sharing these teachings because they're feeding on the food of the dedicated. The household practitioners are sharing their food, sharing their resources, sharing their shelter, sharing their clothing, giving the monks all of these things that they need in order to sustain their life. And the exchanges is that by them staying dedicated to learning, reflecting, and practicing, they can now share these teachings back with the household practitioners. But if they're living on the food of the dedicated, those dedicated practitioners are looking for teachings. But if the ordained practitioners are out there doing all of these things that the Buddha is talking about, these rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship, all these other things that he's talking about here, how could they stay dedicated and consistently developing their practice and then give the teachings back to the household practitioners in a way that's really meaningful? So in other words, these household practitioners would be supporting the ordained practitioners, but yet they're off doing all these other things that have no benefit to the household practitioners whatsoever. That's not what the Buddha intended. He intended for these household practitioners to be able to provide these resources to teachers and ordained practitioners like me. But then our dedication to our practice is to our students who are supporting us and helping us sustain our life. We then give you back these teachings as a way of appreciation and gratitude and thank you for providing us this womb in which to learn, reflect, and practice these teachings very deeply, even more deeply than maybe someone who's involved in day-to-day -day life with so many things that are going on in their life. So this is the Buddha explaining, hey monks, don't be doing all of these things because you're not really benefiting the household practitioners and other ordained practitioners if you're doing those things. Stay dedicated to learning, reflecting, practicing, and teaching these teachings. This first paragraph, I would like to kind of highlight for a second because some people sometimes misunderstand this. What the Buddha is talking about here is that when monks would roam about and they would go from village to village to village, they would walk barefoot and they, would, they didn't have well-defined roads like we do now. We have very well-defined roads and sidewalks throughout most countries in the world. What they did instead is they would have to walk over people's land. And the Buddha is explaining, hey, you know, be aware. These people are feeding you. They're taking care of you. They're planting crops and they're growing food in order to support you and give you this food. Be sure that you're not destroying their seeds, that you're not destroying the roots, the stems, the joints, the cutlings of these plants because that's ultimately going to feed the household practitioners and it's going to feed you too. So don't cause harm to the farmer's crops is what he's saying. Some people think that this means like you can't eat a broccoli or you can't eat an apple because an apple has seeds in it. But that's not what the Buddha is saying here is he's saying, you know, be aware as you're roaming about the world, aesthetics and Brahmin, be sure that you're not 
causing damage to these crops because these crops are what is going to feed all of us and ensure that you're practicing harmlessness. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Seems that uh, this was a question for the teacher and uh, really thanks for Gautama Buddha for his teachings and for you for your time, effort and energy for these uh, 124 chapters. Really thanks teacher. Yeah, you're welcome. This was about a three month journey of going through this volume three and learning 10 chapters a week. Not only the words of the Buddha, but then the explanations that I've shared as well as these classes. So if you've been progressing along in learning through this, this is a real solid foundation. This book, volume three, really gives you kind of an overview of some of the other books that you're going to be seeing. From here forward, we're going to be going through volume four through volume 13. But this volume three gives a real overview of a lot of the various teachings that you're going to see in each one of these volumes. We're going to penetrate deeper and deeper and deeper into the Buddhist teachings. So for next week, we're going to be in volume four, which is titled Exploring the Path to Enlightenment. This is a book that has 31 chapters, so it'll take us about three weeks to go through it. And we're going to do 10 chapters a week, just like we've been doing. So if you would like to read before class, you can download that book or you can order that book on Amazon or you can take it and print it yourself and read chapters one through 10, where you will then be prepared to come into class and maybe have questions. If you don't have a chance to read for any reason and you'd like to just come to class, we're going to read those 10 chapters just like we normally do. So enjoy your reading. Remember that, you know, if you just read 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, this is a great way to just kind of gradually bring the teachings into the mind. Whereas if you sit down and you try to read one hour, two hours at a time, it's like eating that big meal, kind of indulging in that big meal and having a big fat old stomach where now it's harder to digest that food because you've engrossed into so much food. So the same thing when you're learning these teachings, if you just gradually learn them little by little, just taking small bites, chewing on that and digesting that, that 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, slowly trickle the teachings into the mind. It'll give the mind more time to kind of reflect on the teachings and you'll get more benefit out of learning them that way. So that's what I would suggest for all of these chapters and all of your comings and goings as you're developing your practice along this path is that you can just gradually learn them bit by bit. And by you having your eyes in these books over the course of the time of this program, you'll find that there'll be situations that will come up in your life and you will have handled it a certain way. And then two or three days later, you just happen to be reading the Buddhist teachings and you're like, oh my goodness, he's teaching what just happened. And now it's either confirming for you that what you did and how you handled that situation was a wonderful way to do that. Or he's going to be giving you some teachings to help you improve that situation for the future. Or another situation is you can be reading the Buddha's teachings regularly like this. And then you're reading what he's teaching. And then two or three days from now, you might have a situation that occurs that directly relates to something you just read in the Buddha's teachings. And now you're better prepared to handle that situation and you'll have better results because of your consistent, slowly trickling the teachings into the mind. It's going to gradually help you develop your life practice where you'll see situations 
that will benefit you from having learned and practiced these teachings more deeply like this and doing it on a more slow, consistent, ongoing basis. So thank you all for your dedication of learning and practicing and studying up to this point. I'll see you guys next week where we'll learn chapters one through 10 of volume four. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in chapter nine, which is what is gamma and how does it affect me? And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group. So I'll see you either Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.